How have you been going with the book of Revelation? Doing okay? I thought that we'd done quite well the last couple of weeks and um, it just seemed appropriate to finish off with this uh, third text. And um, we've cherry-picked the themes, so we haven't gone into all the details of all the bits and pieces that are there. We've, we've taken the big picture view and today we're coming to the end. In case you've been wondering where this is all headed and what we're all in for, the answer to that question will be given today. Because uh, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now we're told very early on in the biblical story that there's a problem with creation. Not with the creation at the very first, but very soon into the story. And we need to be precise about this problem because it's not that there are human beings involved per se, it's the way the human beings have opted to relate to one another that seems to be the problem. Remember in the garden there's the two trees, there's a tree of life and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you haven't read your Genesis for a while you might have forgotten that but God's creating everything and separating the waters and dry land and putting animals everywhere and lovely plants are starting to grow in the ground. And there's two trees that are clearly identified in the centre of the garden. They're kind of not, not told much about it except they're allowed to eat from the tree of life but they're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the snake comes along and persuades Eve who persuades Adam and Adam eats of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and uh, things start to go <laughs> pear-shaped. Hmm. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> I'll be here all week, don't forget to tip your waitress. Yeah, okay. Now it seems likely that these two trees represent alternate approaches to the way human beings can relate. And the clue is that soon after they eat from this forbidden tree, human beings have changed the way that they relate. So initially there's a great deal of freedom and grace and acceptance and uh, intimacy and movement between them and very soon there's covering up and blame shifting and uh, accusing and this kind of thing. This vision in John's revelation indicates that the consequences of these proto-human beings' choice that change the whole dynamic between people and God and people and each other and people and their environment will no longer negatively shape the whole of creation as it has done. There will be a new organising principle and that tainted approach will be gone forever. And that is good news. A couple of weeks ago I referred to creation not as the manufacturing of the stuff of the ground and uh, the plants and all that stuff, but the organising of things. Uh, in ancient Near Eastern creation stories, the act of creation is not so much the manufacturing of stuff, but the organising of it for a purpose, a particular purpose. And we see that in the Genesis account. God is separating things out and putting them in places so that they can be fruitful and produce and do the thing that they're meant to do. Uh, one of the areas of the creation that has always perplexed the ancient Near Eastern mind is that of the sea because it's really hard to organise and control. In fact, it is perpetually out of control. It's the one arena that if you went out into, you just didn't know what would happen. 
There was no way you could organise and keep under control the powers of the sea. It was, in a sense, the last vestiges of uncreation in the created order. And so we hear in this vision that there will be, there will no longer be any sea. Somebody, I think it was one of my daughters saying, that's terrible, where will the dolphins be? But you have to remember we're dealing with metaphor. There may well be dolphins in heaven, I'm not sure about that one, but this is about all the bits of uncreation that may have persisted will be created. They will be organised and purposeful and they will fulfil what they were designed to do. The new heavens and the new earth will have no sea, no areas left outside the reign of God. And the holy city will come down. Now, this is interesting, right? Because for many of us, when we think about getting close to God, we will think about going into natural surrounds, uh, not being in the built environment where we're reminded of human beings and all their impact on the world, but we might go for a bushwalk or watch a sunset or look at a rainbow or something like that. But here, the vision of God's presence is a holy city. The new Jerusalem, purposefully arranged for its bride who is Christ. And the city is a place of uh, where the clearest view of human capacity comes into view, I think. Um, human beings organising themselves together is what the city is about. All uh, the glory and the horror of human behaviour is displayed in the city. We can see beautiful structures and beautiful architecture. We can organise massive amounts of resources and efficiently and effectively attend to people's needs. We can hold city-wide festivals and celebrations where there's immense joy and participation as well as create obscene, amount, obscene amounts of toxic pollution and perpetrate horrid neglect and abuse on one another. Both of those things kind of happen side by side in the city. Now, the new city will be as a bride perfectly suited for her husband, so this city is going to operate according to the ways of Christ. But remember the first city that's associated with heaven? You might have to cast your mind way back to Genesis around about chapter 11, the city of Babel. Only that one came from the ground up and it was human beings wanting to build their tower to heaven. And uh, it was a crude attempt to exalt themselves and lay claim to ultimate power. City-states have been trying to do the same thing ever since. The contrast here is this city comes down from heaven. It is the work of God. It is perfectly suited to the ways of God. And it won't be held together by a common language. There may still be all these languages, but it will be held together by a shared desire to love, to bless to strengthen one another. Like Robin said about the reading in John, if we would just love one another, well, this new city will be held together by that. It doesn't matter what language you speak, you'll be loved and you will love and that will be the unifying principle. Now, how's it going to be different? The key aspect of this new city is that God will be in the midst of the city. But is that really new? Because... Hasn't God been among the people from the very beginning? Um, 
was God not walking in the garden with Adam and Eve at the very beginning? And has not God shown up at key moments in the history of Israel? Isn't there a fairly, fairly regular conversation that's ongoing through the prophets of God's presence with the people? In what way is God now more present in that city than God is not present with us right now here? Why is there a distance between us and God? See, God has been present, but there's also been distance, and the distance is because, frankly, that's the way we like it. We want distance. Our God is a God of truth. Our God is neither a cajoler nor a manipulator. Our God is not into making a sale and spinning things so that we might um, be convinced of something. Our God is a God of truth, and that's a bit tricky for us. Um, have any of you seen the uh, Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson movie, A Few Good Men? You'll probably know this line when I use it, but uh, Nicholson's character is a colonel in the army, and uh, Tom Cruise's character is a lawyer, and Nicholson is responsible for the men under his command, and there's been a hazing incident where a soldier has inadvertently lost his life, and they're going through a court-martial process, and the, the lawyer is really trying to goad the colonel and he's making a plea for the truth to be told about this story and the colonel responds with, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. You've probably seen Jack Nicholson deliver that line somewhere on the internet. And he, the colonel goes on to explain that his soldiers hold a line that protects a nation and they do whatever is necessary to protect the nation, whatever means necessary. And the population does not want to know about that stuff. They just want to know they are safe. And there's truth to that. By and large, the colonel is right. We don't want to know the truth. The truth is unsettling and it carries with it unwanted responsibility. We just want to be safe, do we not? We don't want to be too close to the God of truth because that God sees through our spin and our excuses. We'd rather just be safe. And the truth is not safe when our lives are built on half-truths because the truth has a habit of exposing half-truths. And so we experience a distance from God because, frankly, that's the way we like it. So where do we find God now? Once upon a time we figured we knew where to find God. It would be in the temple or indeed in the church. Yet Solomon all those years ago when he was dedicating the first temple knew that God could not be contained in a building. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built, Solomon says in 1 Kings 8.27. God has always been in our midst. As we welcome the awareness of God's presence, we experience that presence in the presence of one another. It is more than simply the presence of the other. It is the self-giving to and of the other. And in that, there's a mystery where we actually discover tangibly the presence of God. 
a mystery occurs in which the fullness of the experience is richer than simply the sum of the parts of those who are present. And there's a deeper thing going on. The other person is not God, but we encounter God in good relationship with the other. And this vision talks about going beyond that initial curse. One of the features of the world we currently live in is that it's loaded with opportunities for frustration, grief and pain. And much of this is because we struggle to make meaning. We need to make sense of things and things don't seem to make sense to us. Our circumstances and events threaten to overwhelm us. When we are held by the accepting love of the presence of God, we are not so easily overwhelmed. Rather than being intimidated, overwhelmed and then disabled in our process of making sense of the world, we can be held through some of those really difficult times. And that can take a long time. A couple of years ago, when I was first here at Mustard Seed, or fairly early on, I think I might have mentioned this story, but a young woman came to our door late at night and she was in quite deep distress and we invited her in. We hardly knew her, but we knew her through connections, uh, people drinking in the pub and so forth outside our door. So we'd, we'd met her a few times and she was affected by alcohol, but coherent enough to tell her story. Uh, her marriage was in trouble. She'd fallen pregnant to a man who wasn't a husband and she was basically running away from herself and she didn't know what to do or where to turn. And she came to our door simply on the strength of the intuition that we would not judge her. And we did not. And simply that amount of grace enabled her to pause long enough in her judging of herself. She already knew what the sensible things to do were. She was just beating herself up continually And just by being with her and letting her think her thoughts in the context of non-judgment gave her the buffer, the grace, to enable her to do what she needed to do. And there's a sense that we need uh, meaning and direction that's bigger than us, that holds us, where our life can emerge It's it's bigger than our immediate overwhelming experience. We're held by a larger story and a larger context and a larger community. This new creation is also beyond the fight for survival. So much of our journey through life feels like a fight for survival. Darwin's biological theory of survival of the fittest has become an economic theory It's also become a political theory, an educational theory, a social theory. It's just survival of the fittest everywhere we turn these days. Our formation in this world orients us for survival. But we don't get so many clues about how to live abundantly to the point where even in our current abundant context, and by any measure, we live in an abundant context, we're still... Uh, we still have, you know, we have more than enough of everything, but we're still manufacturing narratives of struggle for survival while looking away from genuine threats that are posed by greed and isolation. So there are actually threats to our survival, but they're not the threats we're attending to because we think we have to work so hard to get the new car or the, the whatever else it is over here or the 
the thing and we, we distract ourselves. Because how do we know what is good and evil? How do we know what is good of it? I want to introduce to you this to the, a, a, an equation which I'll challenge you to think about long and hard. Whatever gets me what I want equals good. Whatever gets in the way of that equals evil. Now at first blush you go, oh, that's not true. But you think about it. This is really the working assumption that shapes most of our default decision-making processes. If it gets me what I want, it's good. If it gets in the way of that, it's evil. And the trap here is that in that context, everything is ultimately arbitrary. The thing is good simply because it suits me to call it good, even if I'm not honest about that's what I'm doing. And within ourselves, I think we know that is not sufficient foundation for anything. And it is blessed relief to hear the words of God say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is a declaration of a context that is bigger than us. And unexpectedly, this reality is the water of life for us. We need to be saved from our arbitrary meaninglessness. The, the declaration of what is good and evil that arises from our own sense of things and only the acceptance of what is truly good that's bigger than us offers that refreshment in life. You see, the new heavens and the new earth will not be a pristine garden like the first creation. It will be a built environment, a city where people have laboured hard and done many things. Not a city just like the ones we know currently. It will be a new city perfectly suited to the ways of Christ. This is not optimism. This is not optimism. This is a vision of faith. The belief that the ways of God will ultimately prevail because they are ultimately the only ways that genuinely offer life to the whole world. And we are invited, we are privileged to live into those kingdom ways now and receive those blessings now. Let us pray. Lord, there are still many mysteries for us in the ways of your kingdom and the ways that you would reveal that. But we know enough to know where life is. And it feels risky to live into that because we're so used to survival. But you call us into life and we would go with you into life. Lead us by the power of your spirit. Set us free from those things that rob life from us. Help us to discover your presence in our very midst now, today, this morning and each day. To the glory of your name. Amen.